0: All right, well, good evening, guys. Why don't we turn in our Bibles to the book of James, chapter 5. Tonight, God willing, uh, we will finish the book of James. And James uh, begins to wrap things up. Uh, We are going to pick it up in verse 7 of chapter 5. But James now begins to wrap up his letter the same way he began it, by encouraging believers who are suffering for their faith, encouraging them to be Patient. And what was he encouraging them to be patient for? Well, again, verse seven, therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. Now he may have in mind the coming of the Lord for his church or the rapture. uh, But I think probably more than that he has in mind, since he's writing primarily to Jewish believers. And of course they were all looking for Messiah's return to establish his kingdom. That was a promise God gave to the Jewish people, believing Israel, actually. Uh, Not all Jews were believers, and many won't be in the kingdom with the Messiah. But uh, for those uh, believing Jews, God promised that Messiah was going to come and establish a kingdom. And it would be a glorious new age where man's rebellion would come to an end and God would reign on the earth. And of course, uh, Romans 11 tells us that we as the people of God, the church, are, are grafted into that promise as well. So we'll be a part of the millennial kingdom. So I really think James has in view here... Uh, The second coming of Christ to establish then his kingdom on the earth. Either way, though, either way, the coming of the Lord is going to put an end to the persecution of God's people. And it's going to usher in, as we just said, a glorious beginning. A new eternal age, an age where there's no more suffering, no more tears, no more sorrow. Um, For those of us who are redeemed in the church age, uh, it'll be a a never-ending kingdom. We won't ever see death again and the um, joy will uh, be eternal. and uh, But until that time, we must be patient. We must be patient. James uses the word patient two times in verse 7, one time in verse 8. It is the Greek word thumeo, and it uh, comes from two different Greek words. Makros, which means long, and then thumos, which means anger. So this compound word means long-tempered or long-suffering. Now, that's a different Greek word, than the one that James used to start his letter. Uh, In chapter 1, he said in verses 3 and 4, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now that Greek word uh, is hupomone, which literally means to remain under, to remain under. And the idea is remain under pressure. Don't, Don't run, okay? It speaks of endurance under great stress or perseverance under pressure. You're hanging in there. You're not bolting uh, when things get a little rough. Many Greek scholars think that the word translated long-suffering here in chapter 5 refers to patience with respect to persons, whereas the one that James opened up in chapter 1, that word translated patience actually uh, refers to patience with respect to conditions or situations. And both are important, right? I mean, when you're talking about, and and the idea is, look, we are are looking at James' epistle. He's really wanting his readers to grow in maturity. He wants them to grow up. As we have said, the theme of his book is really uh, Christian maturity. And here's another characteristic of Christian maturity. And that is that uh, God's people who are mature, yeah, they hang in there. They don't bolt when things get rough, uh, but also they demonstrate a measure of patience, long-suffering with all kinds of people, especially, of course, problem people. That's the mature Christian. They are long-suffering with uh, people. In other words, they manifest the fruit of the Spirit towards others. And again, I think that the troubled people, the the, uh, difficult ones, they're the ones that obviously... We need to. Show, it's easy to show love and patience and everything else to uh, godly, spirit-filled people. All right. It's the it's the the ones who are difficult, uh, the ones who are you know always uh, trying to push the right buttons to get us going. Right. But Paul said in Galatians five verses twenty two and three about the fruit of the spirit. Uh, he talks about of course love, joy, peace. Of course, and then he puts long suffering in there. And then he says kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and then also self-control. You know, long-suffering self-control, these are the things that James has in mind when he talks about, you know, hang in there and um, be patient. Now, this patience, though, um, that James is encouraging his readers to manifest towards those who are persecuting them is still difficult, even for those who are walking in the Spirit. Uh, Don't forget, his readers were facing persecution. And he wanted them to be patient. He didn't want them to retaliate against those who were persecuting them. Again, this patience is patience towards people, even those who are persecuting you. Jesus said, we need to love our enemies, right? Well, that's impossible with our human love. We have to draw on God's divine love. And the idea is that this kind of patience is a fruit of the Spirit. But even for those of us who are Spirit-filled, it's really still not very easy. It's difficult. And James understands that. Therefore, he goes on to give three examples of how believers living under difficult circumstances can experience this kind of patient endurance uh, as they, or in other words, we wait for the Lord to return. He, first of all, uses the farmer as an illustration of patience. Verse 7 He said, Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives uh, the early and latter rain. Now, the farmer is a great example of someone who does a lot of work, an awful lot of work, before he sees any results, and especially before he can harvest his crops. I mean, he has to cultivate the soil. And in Israel, there's a lot of rocks in the soil, okay? I mean, when we were out there one year, we passed by uh, a field where the farmer had already cultivated uh, the field and there were big piles of rocks all over the place that they had taken out of the soil. In fact, in Jesus' day there were so many rocks they actually used them to make walls. They walled off their uh their fields using the rocks that came out of the soil before they could plant the field. So you have to cultivate the soil, plant the seed, wait for the early rain by faith. A lot of faith goes into farming, right? Wait for the early rain by faith. That was late fall that would uh, come, Uh, and then be patient. Wait for the latter rain by faith once again. God was going to send without these rains, you weren't growing anything. So it was a a walk of faith to farm. All right, just like it's a walk of faith for us to serve the Lord. But uh, you know, and uh, they'd have to wait for the latter rain that took place uh, in the um, late spring, and then then the harvest would be ready. But um, as I said, the same basic qualities that go into farming go into serving the Lord. We have to cultivate the soil of a person's heart. See, that's what the, the parable of the sower, right? A man went forth to sow seed in his field. The seed fell on different types of soil. But Jesus, when he explained it, said the soil was different types of hearts, okay? So we're not sowing literal seed in literal soil, but the soil that we're sowing seed into is the heart. Now, often you don't have a chance to pray for somebody that you want to witness to. You're on the bus uh, going to work, or the train, I should say, or or you bump into somebody that, you know, the Lord just opens up a conversation, and you witness to them. You don't have a lot of time always to pray for somebody, but certainly the people that we're closest to, that are unsaved. We pray constantly that the Holy Spirit would cultivate the soil, break up the fallow ground, as somebody has said, right? Uh, and then, of course, we sow the seed. That, that just simply means share the gospel with them. Again, the seed, the uh, parable of the sower, when Jesus talked about the, uh, the the farmer who went forth to sow seed in his field, uh, when he explained it in Mark's gospel, he said the seed is the word. The seed would be the gospel, the word of God, of course. And um, as we share, sow the word of God into someone's heart, then, of course, we have to wait for the Holy Spirit to, you know, water the seed. You know, uh, you just work in their hearts and until they finally, you know, Something begins to happen, and the farmer plants the seed. He doesn't know what's going on inside that soil. Is the seed germinating? Is it growing? Well, the only way he knows is by what finally pokes its way out of the soil. The same is true uh, for us who have sown the seed in a person's uh, life, their hearts. Uh, eventually, as we're praying, we're praying, we're praying, and, and all eventually we, we begin to see something happening. They're beginning to ask more questions, you know? Uh, maybe they say they have an extra Bible I can have. They start coming to study or to church, right? Something is going on. You're beginning to see life taking place, and um, this is how it works, right? And then, of course, we have to wait until ultimately um, for the great harvest, and that's where the Lord comes back, and uh, that's ultimately what we're waiting for. That's the that's the main harvest, okay? But um, we have a part in the harvest, and God has a part. Um, we can't do God's part. We can only do our part. We can only sow the seed of the, of the gospel into people's hearts. We can just share our faith. We can't bring new life forth. Uh, as we said Sunday, our job is to bring Christ to men. It is not to bring men to Christ. We can't do that. The only the Holy Spirit can do that, okay? Um, it's a supernatural thing, and it requires us to just be faithful, uh, in doing what God's called us to do, and be patient. In Mark chapter 4, I'm not going to have you turn to these tonight because we've got a lot of ground to cover, but I'll just read them so you can write them down. Mark chapter 4, verses 26 to 29, Jesus said, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground, and should sleep by night and rise by day, and the seed should sprout and grow. He himself does not know how. It's a, you know, When we share with somebody, we don't know what's going on in their heart, but... We know it's a supernatural thing. The Holy Spirit is bringing forth life. The farmer, Jesus said, kind of operates in that kind of faith. He doesn't know how it happens. He just knows when he plants it and it gets watered, eventually something happens and It comes up out of the ground, right? Verse 28, uh, For the earth yields crops by itself, first the blade, then the head, after that the full grain in the head. But when the grain ripens, immediately he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. And Jesus explaining that further in Matthew 13, verse 39. He said, the harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. So this is the ultimate harvest that we are looking for. Now, the main point, guys, that James is driving home as to how believers can learn patience uh, is by first cultivating, while he uses the farmer, I'm convinced, The way we can look at a farmer and learn patience is because by looking at a farmer, we understand that we need to cultivate the mindset of a farmer, right? No farmer plants his his seeds one day and expects to harvest his crops the next day. He understands it's going to take time, and he's fully prepared to wait for the harvest to come, right? The same must be true with the servants of God. You know, we live in such a crazy society where, where everything is instant almost, right? Everything is like we want it right now. We're we've gotten used to things being like uh, instantaneous, and we want to bring that into our relationship with God and into our service for God. We want to sow a couple of seeds, and boom! A lot of young pastors would like to sow a few seeds of a sermon, and then boom! You know, next week a 500 people show up or a thousand doesn't usually happen that way. I mean, I'm not saying it never happens. God has done some incredible things over the centuries but usually it doesn't happen that way and especially on an individual basis when we share the gospel we first have to you know we, we labor and we uh, get the word out uh, but we have to trust God is going to take uh, our prayers for this person and the seeds that we have planted and he is going to bring forth new life salvation but ultimately we wait for his coming when our work will be rewarded with a glorious harvest for the kingdom But once again, guys, this whole process requires patience and faith. Again, verse 8 now says, You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Now, of course, there are numerous exhortations throughout the New Testament uh, encouraging us along these lines. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, Always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. In other words, it is a it is a work of faith, like the farmer. You're out there and you're praying, you're sowing the seed, you're witnessing. And that's all you can do. And now you just pray and trust God to do what He only can do. Bring forth new life. Galatians 6 verse 9, Paul says, And let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Again, it's a promise that we appropriate by faith. You know, sometimes Christians can grow impatient. And I think this is what James was, uh, you know, in the first century, they were under the impression that Jesus Christ was coming back really soon. Now, of course, we should all live with that, the imminency of his return. But uh, for whatever reason, they didn't think a lot of of the Christians were going to die at all. Jesus was coming back so soon. Remember in Thessalonica, when some of the older saints began to die, they didn't know what to make of it. They, they've died and Jesus isn't back yet. Are they lost? And Paul, to write him a letter. No, 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 no. You know, they're not lost. I mean, you know, when Jesus returns for his church, those who have died in Christ will be resurrected first. And we who are alive and remain in the earth will be caught up to meet the Lord here. No, no, they're not lost. But that's how they believed the Lord was coming, like, like right now. I mean, that's how they were living. Uh, and, and now that, you know, we're getting towards, you know, I, I don't know how many years by the time James wrote this, uh, I forgot the date of his writing, but at least 30 or 40 years has passed since Pentecost. And, you know, a lot of the Christians were wondering, well, is the Lord coming back or isn't he coming back? I mean, there's a lot of folks that, you know, when I first got to say, you know, prophecy was so incredibly, um, gosh, I hate to say popular because it should be, you know, it just was part of the word of God. But we were so into prophecy And a lot of people, you know, we thought the Lord's coming back like any second, you know, and we were living like that. You should always live like that. But, you know, but it's been now, what, 35, six years since I've been saved. There's a lot of Christians who used to be on fire waiting for the Lord's return that are not really looking like they used to. Uh, Some of them may have grown weary in well-doing. Some of them may have gotten the impression, well, you know, is the Lord coming back? You know, that kind of thing. You know, are you sure the Lord's coming back? Yeah, I'm sure, because He said it. But look, guys, when your wife was pregnant and her due date came and went and this child still didn't come, did you look her in the eyes and say, You lied to me? You're not pregnant? Why isn't this baby come? No, well, you understood the signs were all there, all right? The baby was coming, so you waited patiently the same is true with the coming of the lord the signs are all there he's going to eventually come back and by the way he's never late he never misses his due date all right he'll be back exactly when he's supposed to come back so keep on doing what you're supposed to do and keep your eyes on the heavens because he's coming back soon and he has said more than a few places the faithful servant keeps serving And when his master comes, finds him or her so doing. You can look at Luke 12, 43. So the farmer is the first example of how we can learn patience in the Christian life by cultivating a mindset that understands that the Lord's coming, when all hardships and sufferings will end, takes time. Then James gives us another principle that will help us to wait patiently for the Lord's return. The examples of God's prophets. Verse 9 do not grumble against one another, brethren, lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. My brethren, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. Guys, if we don't keep looking upward for the Lord's return, we will start looking outward at each other, focusing on each other's faults, how terribly some are treating me, that kind of thing. Okay, And this is going to produce grumbling. Uh, in our hearts towards these Christians, and uh, will ultimately destroy the unity in the body of Christ and the uh, work that God is doing through the local church there. The word grumble comes from a Greek word that means to groan within oneself or to sigh. It describes a bitter, resentful spirit that manifests itself in one's relationships with others. That's why James said in verse 9, do not grumble against one another, brethren, lest you be condemned behold the judge is standing at the door the word condemned is the greek word krino and it means to judge or in this context to be judged now in saying this james could have two different groups and two different judgments in mind first he could be appealing to believers that are harboring bitterness and resentment in their hearts towards the other christians Uh, he is warning them he could be warning them by saying look If you keep harboring all this bitterness and resentment in your heart towards other believers, it may, listen, it may diminish your rewards when you stand before Jesus to receive the rewards that he wanted to give you for the work you did for him in these bodies. I mean, there are numerous passages we could look at. I'll just read you three. Romans 14, verse 10. But why do you judge your brother? Or why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ, the judgment seat of Christ for the believer, is the place where our rewards are given by him to us. It's tantamount to being like um, in the Olympics and uh, you run a race and you uh, place a uh, second. Well, eventually you go up to the judge's seat and you receive your reward or your award for, you know, how you placed. For the Christian, the judgment seat of Christ is not punitive at all because there is therefore now no condemnation, no judgment to those who are in Christ. It is a place where we receive our rewards for faithful service. But we can lose some of those rewards. 1 Corinthians 3, verses 13 to 15, Each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work, this is the work that they have done for Christ on the earth, if anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. So what Paul seems to be saying is that as we approach the throne of God, Jesus' judgment seat, I imagine us holding all the things we did for him, dragging them behind us, we're going to have to pass through some kind of a cleansing fire. And if the works we did for him were not done out of the right motivation, they were done out of a desire for recognition or for material gain. It's so a lot of pastors who are serving God for money. Okay, uh, I imagine, as Paul said, as, as they walk through these fires on their way to the throne to lay these things at Jesus' feet, poof, a lot of people will be. What what happened? All my stuff is gone. Well, it wasn't done out of the right heart. But Paul says even if that does happen you'll be saved because you're not, you're not saved or you don't keep your salvation by your faithful service. But, you know, you're saved by grace. But, of course, again, the rewards, they are determined by your faithful service. But 2 John, verse 8, Look to yourselves that we do not lose those things we work for, but that we may receive a full reward. I think that one nails it more than anything else that we can have rewards. Listen, it's not how good you start your race for Christ. It's how strong you finish. So a lot of people who start strong but don't finish well, they drop out of the race, they get back into the world. Demas is an example of that. He forsook Paul, and Paul says, you know, Demas, uh, he loved this present world, and he left. He split. And so I don't know if Demas was a backslidden Christian or never really knew the Lord, but if he was a backslidden Christian, he has lost a lot of his rewards. And this is what Paul is admon- John is admonishing us. Look to yourselves, that we do not lose those things we work for, but that we may receive a full reward. Faithfulness to the end, guys. But secondly, James might be saying to his readers, he might be addressing his comments to believers who are in carnality, judging each other and so on. And so on. You know, look, knock it off, because you're going to lose rewards. Okay, believers now. But he might have unbelievers in mind because he's done this throughout the book where he's kind of focused some of his comments on unbelieving Jews primarily because that's the group he was really writing to. Um, They considered themselves Christians, but many of them weren't. And so James might be saying to these kind of people, beware of the bitterness and resentment in your heart towards believers in Christ. Your lack of love for God's people may indicate that you're not saved. That might be a warning to unbelievers. Look, all this bitterness, all this unforgiveness that you're harboring towards uh, people in the church, that might indicate you don't even know the Lord. Why? Well, you remember what John said in 1 John 3 verses 13 to 15. He said, Don't marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life. We know that we're saved because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So, so John says, look, one of the litmus tests for salvation is do you love Christians? Now, does that mean I have to love all Christians exactly the same? I think that that's, you know, let's be honest, okay? Right now, there are a few Christians, not many, but a few. We wouldn't mind if when we get to heaven if they're on the other side of town and I live over on this side of town. Now, of course, that's all going to change once you receive your glorified body, everybody in the body of Christ, you're going to love them with all your heart but you know right now let's face it you know but but John's talking about people who call themselves Christians and so critical, so just vicious and, and cruel and so on you know John is saying, look if you hate the brethren, maybe you're not really one of the brethren. So this group, the judgment that James has in mind is the judgment of unbelievers to hell. Second uh, Timothy 4 verse 1, I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. Now this would be a judgment uh, primarily in view here is the one where, where the Lord uh, comes and separates the sheep from the goats. When he comes back to the earth, the earth will be populated with true believers and a lot of unbelievers that follow the Antichrist. And so when he comes, he's going to separate the true from the false, as he had said in one of the other parables, likening people to uh, a harvest. He said, uh, I'll send my angels forth. They'll gather the wheat into my barns, the kingdom, and the chaff he'll burn with unquenchable fire, speaking of all the unbelievers. In 1 Peter 4, 5, we read, they will give an account to him, all these unbelievers. They're going to give an account to the one who uh, judges the living and the dead. Hebrews 10, 30 and 31. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now, don't get nervous, because when it says the Lord will judge his people, you got to understand that the writer to the Hebrews was writing to Jews. Some of them were saved. Many were not. And so he's addressing many of them like unbelievers. Talking about the consequence, that his people would be a reference to the Jewish people, not the church, because the Lord doesn't judge the church. We are saved by the blood of Christ. Our account is paid in full. Our ledger has been washed clean by the blood of Christ. We're not ever going to be judged. So these are those Jews who um, never really received, rejected Christ as their Messiah and Savior. And I believe those are the ones that James has in mind in chapter 5, verse 9. When he says, Behold, the judge is standing at the door. It's James' way of saying the judgment of God is ready to be poured out upon anyone who is living in rebellion against him. And that would be manifested in in one way, in that they are persecuting and mistreating God's true people. Again, all fitting together, right? These people he's got in mind are Jews who call themselves Christians, but they really have never given their heart to Christ. They're still holding on to the Jewish ways of life as far as uh, the sacrifices and feast days and uh, new moons and Sabbaths, all in an effort to earn their salvation through their good works, not coming out of the shadow of Judaism and into the light of the new covenant, Christ, still hanging out in the old uh, covenant. This judgment, he says, you know, behold, the judge is standing at the door. This judgment can come at any time because a person's life could be ended at any time. Tomorrow was not promised to anyone. And that's why James here and other places, Paul, and pretty much all the New Testament writers, they wanted to impress upon their readers the urgency of making sure their life was right with God because at any moment your life could end. And if your life ends and you have not received Christ as your Lord and Savior, you don't get another chance. I mean, it's it's a serious thing to fall into the hands of a living God apart from Christ, a terrifying thing. It's the idea of course you all remember uh maybe you've read it i don't know i have but uh you all remember the famous sermon preached by jonathan edwards sinners in the hands of an angry god and you talk about those puritan preachers man It. please i don't mean to be they they would scare the hell literally out of you with their preaching i'm not kidding you this this was what they were going for you know, to to literally scare you to death till you got your life right with God, okay? But remember one of the statements he makes in that uh, sermon? He says, sinners are walking an icy plank over the pit of hell and at any time their foot could slip and they will fall headlong into eternal destruction. That's pretty graphic, okay? Don't be messing around. Get right with God now while there's still time. But uh, getting back to learning patience as believers in Jesus, James, uh, in speaking to his Jewish readers primarily, that's who he was addressing it to primarily, uh, points them to the example of the prophets of God in the Old Testament. He said in verse 10, My brethren, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. Indeed, we count them blessed who endure. Let me just stop there. As you read the lives of the prophets in the Old Testament, uh, many of them prophesied at times when Israel was really steeped in idolatry and immorality, and there are plenty of false prophets running around that the people love to listen to that would tell the people they're fine, you know? It doesn't, it doesn't matter how you're living, basically. God loves you. You're his people. He'd never judge you, you know? And so when God would raise up a faithful prophet like, you know, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and some of the others, why would they be persecuted? Why would they be mistreated? And it was, it was pretty bad, okay? In fact, you can read uh, in Hebrews chapter 11 as he's talking about uh, what some of these faithful servants, many of them prophets, went through, how they suffered for being faithful to the Lord. I'll just read you uh, a few verses out of chapter 11 of Hebrews He said, others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had trial of mockings and scourgings, yes, and of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. That was the tradition behind Isaiah's death. The king was so uh, incensed about hearing this guy keep preaching and preaching and preaching. He didn't want to hear it anymore. So he had him stuffed into a hollowed out log and then had the thing sawn in half. That's how he died. They were tempted. They were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, and tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. How true. Jesus said, blessed are you when you are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Blessed are you, because this is how they treated the prophets who were before you, the faithful prophets. All right. When we stand up for Jesus, and we're all prophets in the sense that we're all spokesmen for God. We're not officially the office of a prophet. But anyone who speaks on behalf of God uh, is uh, acting in the uh, position of a prophet, a spokesman for the Lord. When you share the word of God with somebody, an unbeliever, you are, in a sense, giving them God's truth. You are prophesying in that you are speaking forth his word, and uh, you're going to be persecuted. Uh, But we need to be faithful James then focuses on someone in the Old Testament giving us a third example of somebody we can learn patience from. He focuses on Job. Now, I gotta tell you, Job is synonymous with suffering. Okay. Um, verse eleven indeed we count them blessed to endure. You have heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. Well, let me read to you what Warren Worsby said about this particular uh, statement about Job. He said, The book of Job is a long book, and the chapters are filled with speeches that, to the Western mind, seem long and tedious. In the first three chapters, you have Job's distress. He loses his wealth, his family, except for his wife, and she told him to commit suicide. So She she was a real joy. Um, He lost his health. In Job chapters 4 to 31, we read Job's defense as he debates with his three friends and answers their false accusations. Uh, Job chapters 38 to 42 present Job's deliverance. First God humbles Job, uh, then he honors Job and gives him twice as much as he had before. In studying the experience of Job, it is important to remember that Job did not know what was going on behind the scenes between God and Satan. Job's friends accused him of being a sinner and a hypocrite. There must be some some terrible sin in your life, they argued, or God would never have permitted this suffering. Job disagreed with them and maintained his innocence, but not his perfection. He never said he was perfect, during the entire conversation. The friends were wrong, of course. God had no cause against Job, uh, and in the end, God rebuked the friends for telling lies about Job. It is difficult, words be said, to find a greater example of suffering than Job, Circumstances were against him. He lost his wealth and his health, he also lost his beloved children, his wife, and his wife was against him, for she said, "Curse God and die again. She is a real joy." His friends were against him, for they accused him of being a hypocrite, deserving of God's judgment, and it seemed like God was against him. When Job cried out for answers to his questions, there was no reply from heaven. Yet Job endured. Satan predicted that Job would get impatient with God and abandon his faith, but that did not happen. It is true that Job questioned God's will, but Job did not forsake his faith in the Lord. Though he slay me, he said, I will hope in him. Nevertheless, I will argue my ways before him. Job was so sure of God's perfections that he persisted in arguing with him, even though he did not understand all that God was doing. This is endurance, end quote. Verse 12, but above all, my brethren, do not swear either by heaven or by earth, or with any other oath, but let your yes be yes, and your no be no, lest you fall into judgment. Now the exhortation in in James 5.12 seems out of place, doesn't it? All of a sudden he starts talking about, he's talking about suffering, and then he talks about oath-taking. Doesn't seem like it fits, okay? How does that, what does that have to do with the problem of suffering? Here's what I believe is what he's doing. Not all suffering is directed at us. Sometimes we can direct it at others. We can cause suffering to others when we give our word to them and even strengthen it with an oath, but then we don't keep our word. James, in saying this, might be, once again, going back to how he began chapter 5, talking about those who were wealthy, who hired the poor to do work for them, promised them a wage, but then cheated them out of their wage. This caused a lot of hardship and suffering in their life because they needed that pay at the end of the day to buy food for their families and other necessities, as we have said. So the rich had the power to cheat the poor, and the poor really had little recourse, little recourse. And in that way, these people would, and many of them called themselves Christians, but in that way, they were uh, taking advantage. They were inflicting suffering on these poor people. And uh, when he admonishes his readers not to swear, either by heaven or by earth, or with any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no, no, he has no doubt in mind, I mean, he has in mind no doubt, I should say, the words of the Lord Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus said in Matthew 5, verses 34 to 37, He said, But I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your yes be yes, and your no, no. For whatever is more than these is from the evil one. What the Lord Jesus is saying, and James is repeating, is that, listen, again, we're talking about Christian maturity. And James is saying, repeating what the Lord said, that godliness means that when we give our word, we keep our word, without having to add weight to it by pronouncing an oath to go along with it. First of all, the Bible doesn't forbid the use of oaths, only deceptive oaths. There are times in Scripture when God himself swore an oath. We see that in Luke 173, Hebrews 3.11, Hebrews 6.13. The problem was that the Jewish people uh, in the times of Jesus and James made a distinction between binding oaths and non-binding oaths. Loopholes that they worked into their oath giving that if you didn't understand how they thought, see, (laughs) they believed that any oath that included the name of God, I swear by God Almighty, the God of Israel, that was a binding oath. But if you swore and didn't include God's name, you didn't swear by the Lord. Well, you know, wink, wink, you know, it's tantamount to crossing their fingers behind their back as they were giving their word to somebody. Because in their mind, it was a legal loophole. I didn't have to keep my word, they thought, if I didn't bind it with the name of the Lord. And there was other things that, and Jesus condemned them for this, of course. I think it was in Matthew 23. He said, you hypocrites, Pharisees and scribes and so on. You know, you say that if he's, a man swears by the temple, he doesn't have to keep that oath. But if he swears by the gold on the altar of the temple, he's bound to keep that oath. You hypocrites. What is worth more? The gold on the altar of the temple that sanctifies the altar. The, the idea is that, look, Jesus said, look, forget all that oath taking. If you can't just say yes or no, yes, I will do it. No, I'm not going to do it uh, without having to to strengthen it with some oath i swear by all that's high and holy you know hey you know what if a person would say that to me i would go why are you having to say that can't i take you at your word and jesus was saying in matthew 5 and james right here in james 5 that godliness doesn't need to take oaths not that they're bad but a person who knows the lord loves the lord Well, they should be able to give their word. I mean, God puts his word above his name. When God gives his word, he keeps it. He wants us to do the same. So um, it was these deceptive oaths that Jesus and James condemned. Uh, James 5, verse 13 is, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. The word suffering means suffering in difficult circumstances. And it was used, the same Greek word was used by Paul the Apostle to describe the sufferings that had come upon him from his preaching the gospel. You read about that in 2 Timothy 2, verse 9. And again, James is saying that a mature Christian doesn't lash out against others when they're going through difficult circumstances. They pray, first of all. And what do they pray? Well, they first of all ask God for the strength to go through the circumstance, the, the difficulty. And then they pray for the wisdom. That they need to understand from God, well, how can I best use this hardship or this uh, adversity to bring glory to your name? It's not about a mature Christian, really. It's not that we who are mature, and I'm just saying that, you know, I like to think I'm mature. Sometimes I don't act like it. But the idea is that, you know, mature people in the Lord are not looking to quickly escape difficult circumstances they understand that god has a purpose in it all right lord well then give me strength to go through it give me grace to learn the lessons you want me to learn through it and lord help me to understand how i can best use it to glorify your name because it's all about your glory not my comfort or ease okay that's maturity guys verse 14 he says is anyone sick among you let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him anointing him with oil in the name of the lord now, the early church believed in God's power to heal the sick. And so when people were sick, they would typically call. And notice it was their responsibility to call for the elders. People say, well, I was sick and my, the elders never came over. Did you call for the elders? <laughs> well, no. Well, the Bible says, call the elders. Get them over there. And I right, we'll come. All right? You know, people don't tell us things and then they're holding against it. We don't read minds. Okay. So he said, look, the early church, they believed in God's power to heal the sick. And so those who were sick would call for the elders to come and anoint them with oil and pray over them. Now, notice James is not promising that they're all going to be healed. He just said, that's the, that's what you do. You call for the elders and let them come anoint you with oil and pray over you. All right? And everyone have faith that God's going to heal. But if he doesn't, you're mature enough to accept that and go, well, you know, God's will be done. Okay. I mean, First John five fourteen and fifteen. Here is the confidence that we have in Him that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us, then whatever we ask, we know that we shall have the things we have asked of Him. Everything has to pass through the grid of God's sovereignty. All right. I can pray with all the faith in the world it doesn't mean God has to answer my prayer or heal a sick person. But that's the way we do it. That's our responsibility. We pray over the sick. We anoint them with oil as a point of contact. And, uh, and, and pray in faith that God's going to heal and many times God will heal and many times he will not. but that's okay. we just keep doing what God told us to do and leave everything then with him. He's sovereign. Now the next statement guys that James makes is somewhat confusing as to what exactly he's referring to. and the last <laughs> verses of James' epistle are the most all the controversy. Is really in the last verses here. I'm going to try to cut through most of it and just give you the synopsis of what, uh, you know, because we could look at all these different opinions. I just I just picked the ones I thought were the most reasonable. Okay, uh, verse 15. You know, you, you, anyone sick, call for the elders, let them go over and, and pray and so on. Uh, and the prayer of faith will save the sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. So. James could have in mind here, and there's different views, but I, let me just tell you what I think. He could have in mind uh, sickness due to sin. The Greek says if he has been constantly sinning, someone who's living in continuous sin, that God has now disciplined that Christian through some kind of a physical sickness that God has brought upon him. Do I have any Support for this in Scripture, yeah, of course. First Corinthians eleven, verses twenty-nine to thirty-four. You remember how that in Corinth they were not eating, eating the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner, all right? And Paul said, uh, verse twenty-nine: For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. Some have died, uh, because you are not honoring the Lord by do by uh, by um, participating in the Lord's Supper whole, in a holy way. Verse 31: For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world. So God chastens or disciplines his kids. He judges unbelievers in the world, you know, but he still loves us so much he wants to chasten us if we're not walking rightly. But Paul says, look, he chastens us, but he condemns unbelievers on the day of judgment. That's not us, he's saying. We, we're not like the world, but he still will, the, the, the discipline can be pretty harsh. He said in Corinth, uh, God had, had uh, struck some with sickness, and some had even taken home. Therefore, my brethren, when, it, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. But if anyone is hungry, let him eat At home, lest you come together for judgment, and the rest I will set in order when I come. So Corinth was a mess. Okay. Uh, You know, you had these love feasts, potlucks, the early church engaged in on a weekly basis. And um, during the potluck, they would have communion. Well, the church was made up of a few wealthy people and a lot of slaves. Uh, The wealthy people, they had plenty of money to buy whatever food they wanted. They would come, you know, with picnic baskets full of goodies. And they would congregate in one corner of the church. And the slaves, the poor saints, would come and have to, you know, had scraps to eat. And uh, the rich were glutting themselves and getting drunk even with wine. The poor were, were starving. And then let's, let's have communion, celebrate our oneness in Christ. And God, God said that's such hypocrisy that that's why he judged many of them. So Paul, uh, James could have in mind those kind of people. He, it could be that James is describing a church member who is sick because God is, was disciplining him for living in sin and not repenting. That's the idea that I just brought up, that this could be um, a sickness inflicted by God for uh, continuing an unrepentant sin. One commentator said, and I quote, this explains why the elders of the assembly are called. The man cannot go to church to confess his sins, so he asked the spiritual leaders to come to him. The leaders would be in charge of the discipline of the congregation, end quote. So I can see that, you know, that this person recognized that they were they were sick because they were living in sin and, and had not repented. Now God's got their attention. And they want to confess it, but they're too sick to come to church. So please, elders, come over and will you pray with me? I want to confess these sins. I, I want to get right with God. So, on. however, many commentators point out, guys, that the Greek word, that James uses for sick can mean physically sick, that's true. But it can also mean to be weary, to be weak or to be weary. Weary physically, emotionally, or, or spiritually. There are numerous verses that deal with this. I'll give you just a few. Second Corinthians 12, verse 10, Paul says, Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities. Now, that could be physical infirmities, that's true, uh, but maybe not. He said, I take pleasure, and that's the Greek word that we're talking about there, okay, sick here in verse 15, but in other places it's not translated sick, it's translated weak, and he goes on in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 10, therefore I take pleasure in infirmities and reproaches and needs and persecutions in distresses for Christ's sake, for when I am weak, same Greek word for sick in James 5, he said, then I am strong, Romans 8, verse 3. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. On account of sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. So the law was not sinful, but it was weak in that we couldn't keep it to get to heaven. It couldn't save us. It could only condemn us, and we've talked about that. One author sees what James is saying as definitely referring not to physical sickness, but to Uh, weakness in some way he said and i quote james moves beyond the suffering believers of the previous point to address specifically those who have become weak by that suffering the weak are those who have been defeated in spiritual battle who have lost the ability to endure their suffering they are the fallen spiritual warriors the exhausted the weary depressed defeated christians they have tried to draw on God's power through prayer, but have lost motivation, even falling into sinful attitudes. Having hit bottom, they are not able to pray effectively on their own. In that condition, the spiritually weak need the help of the spiritually strong. End quote. And he points to, as a reference, 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 14. I'll read it to you. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, there's that Greek word, be patient with all. So sometimes, it's not physical sickness that's in view, it's a brother or sister who's just worn out, beaten down, weary in their walk. They need us to run over there and kind of lift them up through prayer and through encouragement. He says, uh, you know, you, you pray for them, the prayer of faith will save the sick. The prayer of faith will save the sick. The word save Is a Greek word that could mean saved from hell. It depends on the context. So we're talking about witnessing to somebody. uh, The context, of course, indicates it would would mean they're saved from hell. Or it could mean heal from sickness, weakness, or infirmity. The prayer of faith will heal the sick or the weak, those who are infirmed. With that in mind, James continues by saying, verse 16, confess your trespasses to one another, and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man, or really the righteous, men, women, it doesn't matter, avails much. The idea of confessing trespasses to one another. The word trespass is a word that means a deliberate, willful sin. Not an accident, but something you did willfully and deliberately to hurt another. So you did something, that's a, a sin is just... You cross a line, you 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 did something wrong, God said not to do it. You didn't realize you were crossing a line, you didn't have, mean to do it, it's a sin. You still violated something God said. A trespass is much stronger, much more, uh, God deals with those in a much more severe way because it's a willful sin. God draws a line in the sand, says don't cross it. You step over the line, you say, okay, what are you going to do about it? That's a trespass. It's a willful, defiant act of rebellion. But the idea is that some were sick. I'm, I'm just thinking now, I'm trying to think like James, might be thinking. The reason that some were sick, those he's addressing now, could be because they were sick because they had sinned against another and were not repenting. And so James says, look, confess your sins to one another. In other words, go to the person that you've offended. If God's judge you with sickness because you have done something wrong to a brother or sister and In some ways, you're continuing that wrongdoing and not repenting. If you're sick, what you need to do is go to that person and confess your sin or your trespass to them. And the idea behind confess means to admit your guilt and ask for forgiveness. And and James could be, and I think this is probably where he's going with this, the idea is, look, if you want to be healed, the first thing you need to do is get right with God, confess your sins to God, okay, but then secondly, you've got to confess you're wrong to the person that you have hurt or have offended or have sinned against. And once you go to the person and you confess your sins, then God very well might release you from the consequence of your rebellion and the sickness, whatever was imposed by him on you, would be removed, Was the idea. I think James' statement, the effect of fervent prayer, though, of a righteous person, Uh, avails much accomplishes great things the new living translation says Uh, i I think that was a general statement by james and not one that was limited uh, to the situation that we're just talking about and i say that because of how james uses elijah to illustrate his point verse 17 elijah was a man with a nature like the effective fervent prayers of the righteous he's talking to those who are suffering Of course, prayer is what we should do when we are going through any kind of suffering. And he says the effective, fervent prayer of the righteous accomplishes great things. And then he uses Elijah as an example. Verse 17, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. We think of these, you know, Elijah was a pretty dynamic prophet. God used him to do miracles, even raise the dead. But James says, look, he was a guy just like we are, you know, with a nature like ours. And he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. Now you can read about these two incidents in 1 Kings 17 verse 1. Uh, Wicked King Ahab was on the throne in Israel. Very wicked guy, his wife Jezebel, they were the demonic duo of the Old Testament, two very bad people. And because of their constant immorality, idolatry, child sacrifice, you name it, they were into it. Eventually, God sends the prophet Elijah, who shows up one day on Ahab's doorstep, like a thunderbolt from God, and says, it's not going to rain from now on until I say it's going to rain. And boom, he's gone. Now you can read the story, right? And finally, after three and a half years, uh, Elijah goes back to Ahab, who wants to kill him for bringing the drought on the land. And I just said, you know what, pal? Look in the mirror. This drought is because of your sin, not me. But I want you to understand, he said to Ahab, but look, God's going to bring rain. In fact, see that little cloud over the Mediterranean? You better run home. That that cloud is going to, it's coming. You better scoot on home quick as you can. And sure enough, that cloud got bigger and bigger. Boom, it just leveled the place with rain. Of course, the idea that James is bringing up is that, look, Elijah didn't have the power to stop the rain or start the rain. He was an agent of God. He was sent by God with a message. It was God's power. He was just acting by faith in what God told him to pronounce to the king. We are acting by faith. We don't have the power to give life, take life, to send people to heaven or to send them to hell. All we are authorized by our king to do is represent him and give people the truth. The power is his, but the faithfulness to declare his word is our responsibility, right? But prayer was the conduit that God used to bring to earth the plans he had already purposed in heaven through Elijah's ministry. Verse 19, brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. All right, some see a reference in those last two verses to the evangelism of the lost. As James closes out his letter, they, they, they see those last two verses. Uh, saves a sinner from death. Death would be the lake of fire, okay? Um, so many see in this a plea from James to, uh, for people to, to go out and preach the gospel because, you know, we want to see the lost saved. So the evangelism is in view here. Uh, others see... In James's remarks, uh, the restoration of a backslidden Christian. When James says, you know, you'll save them from a soul from death, he could have in mind the, the same idea that Paul had in 2 Corinthians 11 that some sins lead to physical death. And, you know, there are times when a Christian just won't repent. God keeps trying to reason with them, sends people to, uh, to confront them and to try to reason with them. Didn't God say to Israel in Isaiah chapter one, "Come, let us reason together," says the Lord. You know, God is always trying to reach us through reasoning with us that we repent. But if a person doesn't repent, sometimes God says to a Christian now, because John talks about a sin unto death, speaking of Christians. Sometimes God will say, "You know what? I've tried to get you to turn around. I've tried to get you to stop dragging my my name through the mud, because you know you call yourself a Christian. People know you're a Christian." And you're living like this. You're dragging my name through the mud. I've tried to reason with you and love you. Still, you will not turn. You know what? You're coming home. And God just pulls them off the earth. So some see that's what's in view here. But guys, either way, I'll let you wrestle with I'll let you decide which one you think he's talking about. Who knows? Maybe in his mind he had both in view. I don't know. But uh, either way, whatever sins a lost sinner committed over the course of their life once they receive Jesus, well, all those sins are now under his blood. God sees them no more. The same idea would apply to a backslidden Christian living in sin, so much so they're in danger of God judging them with physical death. If they will turn, if you can reason with them, and they will listen, and they will come back to the Lord, whatever sins they committed, of course, love covers a multitude of sins. Okay, I think that view was held by William MacDonald, that a backslidden Christian is in view here and trying to bring him back to the Lord. And I like McDonald. He's got a good commentary, one volume. It's a good commentary. He said, and I quote, first of all, this person, this this brother who tries to to recover or restore a, a wayward brother or sister, first of all, he will save his erring brother from dying prematurely under the chastening hand of God. Secondly, he will cover a multitude of sins. They are forgiven and forgotten by God. Also, they are forgiven by fellow believers and veiled from the gaze of the outside world. We need this ministry today. In our zeal to evangelize the lost, perhaps we do not give sufficient attention to those sheep of Christ who have wandered from the fold. End quote. I'll give you one last characteristic of a mature believer. Ready? They are deeply concerned for the welfare of others. They are deeply concerned for the welfare of others. They desperately want to see the lost saved, and so they are constantly sharing the gospel with people because they're so burdened for their salvation. Carnal Christians don't care about the lost like that. Unbelievers definitely don't. When a person has a heart for the lost and is always wanting to reach them with the gospel, that tells me the Spirit of God is heavy on their life, okay? But also, They want to see fellow Christians walking faithfully in God's truth as well. And if they stray, another brother or sister strays, they do whatever they can to bring them back to the Lord. These are the ones that are always trying to keep Christians accountable. You know, uh, you haven't been in church a couple weeks, they call you up, hey, I haven't seen you in church. What's going on? Will you stop bothering me? Not bothering you, just want to keep you accountable. All right? Love you. I know that uh, you walk away from God and you stop coming to church. The devil's going to really pound on you i don't want to see that happen i want john says i have john the apostle i have no greater joy than to see my children walking in truth right the heart of every spirit-filled believer is they want to see god's people walking in truth and in fellowship with him and if they stray because they have the heart of god and god is a shepherd right they want to go after the wayward sheep to bring them back look god is the ultimate people person okay Um, And no one can be godly, which means like God. And that's what maturity is all about, right? Christian maturity is is just being godly or being like God. But um, no one can be godly or like God who doesn't have a heart, the heart of God for people. And and that's just how James ends this epistle. Um, Talking about the qualities of a mature believer, challenging his readers to attain to these qualities, he says, look, guys, let me just sum it up. The Christian life is all about reaching the lost and doing everything you can to keep the saved walking closely with the Lord. That's what it's all about. I mean, didn't Paul say in Galatians 6, those of you who are spiritual stoop down and bear the burdens of the weak. Those who are mature want to... It's not, you know, it's not like um, Cain. Well, am I my brother's keeper? A spirit-filled Christian doesn't ask that question because they already know, yeah, I'm to be my brother or sister. I'm not to be their keeper, but somebody who watches over them, somebody who loves them and wants to see them walking with God, wants to see God's best for their life, which means they stay in close fellowship with God. That's the heart of a mature believer. So hopefully God has used this book in your life in some way, James can be a little brutal at times, brutally honest, um, but I, I like that. You know, I, I would rather somebody be brutally honest with me than to try to placate me. Just give it to me straight, okay? If I'm doing something wrong, I don't want to be sweet-talked. Just give me a kick in the pants and tell me what I'm doing wrong. I, I prefer that. James is a straight shooter. And uh, so we will say goodbye to James. Next week, we will start a new book, and I'm not going to tell you what it is. <laughs> you will have to come to find out. I will tell you this, it's not First Peter, okay? It's not First Peter. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your goodness and grace. We thank you, Lord, for these strong words that our brother James brings to us, Lord, words that we need to hear. Because, Lord, these are difficult days. Many have wandered away. Many are no longer on fire. They're getting into, they've gotten into carnal things. They don't really care too much about much of the things of God anymore. Prophecy is no longer a big issue. Sharing the gospel is no longer a big thing. They're too busy uh, focusing on themselves. And, Lord, give us grace that we not be like that, that we not be carnal Christians, but mature believers who walk in the Spirit and manifest all the fruit of the Spirit in the character of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So thank you, Father. We ask you to continue to bless our Wednesday studies, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.